invite you to turn with me once again to the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 14. This morning we're, uh, we're looking at verses 22 through 29, passage about tithing. And uh, if you were with us this morning in Sunday school, then you know you're getting a double dose of uh, Deuteronomy 14, 22 through 29. In Sunday school, we focused on uh, the system of tithing in Old Testament Israel. And this morning during the sermon, we're going to focus on the biblical theme of uh, God's people feasting in the Lord's presence and how that is to shape uh, the church's life to get today and also our hope for the future. Uh, Deuteronomy 14, verses 22 through 29. Let's hear the word of the Lord. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God, in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. And if the way is too long for you, so that you're not able to carry the tithe, when the Lord your God blesses you because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there, then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves. And you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. And you shall not neglect the Levite who is within your towns, for he has no portion or inheritance with you. At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns shall come and eat and be filled that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. I wonder if you have ever noticed this about the earthly ministry of Jesus, that he loved, Jesus loved to eat and drink with others. He went from house to house, eating and drinking. In fact, his ministry is summarized in the Gospels as the Son of Man came eating and drinking. So much so that his opponents, the killjoy Pharisees, accused Jesus of being a glutton and A drunkard, one commentator on Luke's gospel said that Jesus was either going to a meal, at a meal, or was coming from a meal. And when Jesus wasn't feasting with others, he was often talking about it. In Luke 13, Jesus promises that people will come from the east and the west and the north and the south and recline at a table In the kingdom of God. In Luke 14, Jesus tells the parable 
of a great banquet. And he also tells people that when you host your own feast to invite the poor and the needy, something we see reflected in the passage we just read. In Luke 15, you have the parable of the prodigal son, which of course ends with this extravagant feast in the father's house. And in Luke 22, Jesus encourages his disciples, get this, he encourages his disciples by saying to you, I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom. Okay, that's great. That's great news. A a kingdom is assigned to us as Jesus's disciples. But why? Why is this kingdom assigned to us? That you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, Jesus says. That's why the kingdom is assigned to us. That we may eat and drink at Jesus's table. And this pattern of feasting is found not only throughout the earthly ministry of Jesus, but really throughout the whole Bible in the lives of God's people in both Old Testament and New Testament, as I'll try to show you really from Genesis to Revelation. And so before we look specifically at this passage in Deuteronomy 14 about tithing, I, I, want, I, I, have, I hope it will be helpful to see the bigger picture by providing a survey of feasting in Scripture. Okay, so message this morning, two basic points. Feasting in the Bible, second, uh, feasting and the tithe. All right, let's begin at the beginning. In Genesis 1, the week of creation, we, we need to understand where it was heading. The week of creation was aiming toward communion with God where it was all going. God put man in the garden to be with him and we need to appreciate the fact that that communion entailed feasting. Now think about this. In the creation week, we know each and every day God uh, created and then positively evaluated what he made and declared it good. Right? Um, The sky, the sea, the land, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, and land animals. Good, 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 good. And the creation of man on the sixth day. Good. And it's all leading towards this ultimate climactic expression of goodness. But we need to know when it comes. I think sometimes we think it comes after the creation of man placed in the garden. But something else happens first. First, the Lord says to the man and woman that every plant yielding seed on the face of the earth, every tree with its seed and fruit was given to them to enjoy. And over, only after that divine bon appetit do we hear the declaration, very Good. In other words, God created the world and he filled it with good things to prepare for what we could rightly call this huge party to be enjoyed on the Sabbath day. And after getting everything ready for this festive day of rest, the host of the feast invites everything that has breath 
to feast upon his bounty. It is as if the whole of the created order exists so that man might feast in the presence of God. And this goal of man feasting before the Lord continues to develop and unfold throughout redemptive history. Think of the fundamental redemptive act of God in in the Old Testament. What is it? It's the Exodus. Okay, God sends Moses to Pharaoh to say to Pharaoh, Exodus chapter 5 verse 1, let my people go so that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Why did God say deliver my people? Why did God say let my people go? Why would he redeem them out of bondage in Egypt so that they could hold a feast in God's presence? It's no surprise or wonder then, once they made it into the promised land, why God established a calendar of feasts to govern the the year uh, for his people, the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of First Fruits, the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Trumpets, and the Feast of Tabernacles. The whole story of Israel, the story of their salvation, is told by annual feasts. And, And remember the story of Moses, backing up for a second, and the elders at Mount Sinai in, is it Exodus chapter 24, where we're told that they beheld God and they ate and drank before the Lord. They saw God in some sense and they ate and drank in his presence. And then there's the the testimony of the prophets, if we jump forward, where one of the greatest prophetic hopes is the promise of a great feast one day. Isaiah 25 is just one example of this as it looks forward to the coming of the Messiah and it says on this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. So it is not an overstatement at all to say that the promise of an extravagant feast with the Lord is central to the hope of God's people. And so when we get to the ministry of Jesus, the Lord himself dwelling in the midst of his people, it is no wonder why he went about eating and drinking with his followers, because in eating and drinking, he was, he was bringing fulfillment to this expectation of God feasting with his people, running throughout the Old Testament. As Jesus himself makes clear, his presence demands feasting, for the bridegroom is there. In the face of Jesus, the people behold God like Moses, And they respond like Moses by eating and drinking. And then, of course, before Jesus went to die on the cross for us and then rise again and ascend into heaven for us, what did he do? He gave us a meal. He gave us a meal and he said, take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. And the sense of the text is 
Keep on doing it. Keep on doing it until I return. And then, get, I, I, this one really, it, it just it amazes me. What do we find Jesus doing after his resurrection? Thinking here of the Gospel of John. After he's raised from the dead, what do we find him doing? We find him eating once again. This is amazing. John chapter 21, his disciples, you know, they don't know what to do with themselves. They've gone back to fishing. And Jesus appears to them at the Sea of Tiberias. He's there on the shore. What is the resurrected Christ doing? He's making a charcoal fire. And he's cooking fish. And he says to his disciples, come and have breakfast with me. Come and eat. Come and eat. It's incredible. And following the pattern of scripture, the early church's worship and life was organized around meals. Acts chapter 2 verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. I mean, the impression that you get throughout the book of Acts is there's no church without food. There's no church without food, without feasting. Luke sums up the church's life just a few verses before this, saying that the early Christians devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, and in, in, in the Bible, fellowship and food go hand in hand, and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. You see, food is at the center of the church's worship and life. We could look at another example of this in uh, Galatians. You get kind of a snapshot into a controversy in the early church in Galatians chapter 2, where what was happening? You, you, had, you had Jews and Gentiles sitting down together for table fellowship, which is an incredible thing when you understand it. But what was happening is we have this, this circumcision party coming in who are separating themselves. And even the great apostle Peter joined with them in drawing back from sitting down at table with Gentiles. And Paul said, no, 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 no. I will not have any of this. This goes against the gospel itself. But you get a little window into the fact that table fellowship was at the very heart of the life of the church. And then we go to the book of Revelation. And as I said, the entire story of redemption culminates in a feast. The marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19, blessed are those, happy are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And if you look at Revelation 19, you'll see that that joy and uh, uh, exalting in God go hand in hand with feasting. Feasting and rejoicing in the presence of God. As I said, this theme runs from Genesis 1 all the way through to the end in the book of Revelation. It is at the very heart of what 
God wants for us, brothers and sisters. He wants us to rejoice in his presence and feast on his abundant provision with him at the very heart and center of it all. Now we have just, we have just skated along the surface with that survey. There's so many other passages that we could look at, but I hope with this brief survey, we, we begin to see that feasting before the Lord is not incidental in Scripture. It's not out there. No, it's right at the heart of things. Creation. I've given you every plant to eat. Go on and enjoy yourself. The Exodus. Let them go out and hold a feast. Israel's entire calendar year. Feast after feast after feast. The prophets, the Lord will make a rich feast of of food and well-aged wine. Jesus came into the world eating and drinking and he gave his people a meal to share with him until he returns. The church broke bread and received food with glad and generous hearts. And then in the book of Revelation, it all culminates with the bride of Christ at the marriage supper of the Lamb. There's, there's one more passage, though, that I want to mention. Uh, it's Revelation chapter 3 in the letters written to the seven churches, you know, representing the, the universal church. Jesus comes to the church of Laodicea, and they're in trouble, right? They're in spiritual danger. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. This is what Jesus wants to do with his people. Through, through the ministry of his word, he comes knocking. What does he want? What does he want to do with us? He, he wants to come and share a meal with us. He wants to feast and fellowship with us. And it is what happens every time we come to the Lord's table together. Jesus comes to eat with us. So with the storyline of scripture in view, we see that feasting for God's people is not peripheral. It's not incidental. God wants us to eat and drink with glad and generous hearts. He wants us to eat and drink with joy, abounding joy, generous joy in his presence. And so I don't think it's a stretch to say that feasting should be a regular part of the church's life. Like Israel brought out of Egypt to feast in the wilderness, God invites his people in this often sad, dark, and discouraging world to feast, to remember his goodness, to taste and to see that he is good. And so this pattern of feasting, it should shape the church's life today. We should follow the pattern of scripture. We should follow the pattern of Jesus eating and drinking with others. We should recognize this as God's gift when he is at the center of it all. Eat and drink and be merry. It's not just a suggestion. It's something God calls us to do. This is to be a regular part 
of church life, food and drink from the abundance of God's hand, enjoyed in the presence of brothers and sisters in Christ. In the wilderness of this world, God's people feast and rejoice in fellowship with God and with one another. And as I said, I would talk about in Sunday school, I am more and more convinced that this really is a, a fundamental aspect of the church's faithful witness to the world. That's what Luke says in Acts chapter 2. Listen to this. As the church, this is Luke, as the church worshiped the Lord and broke bread and received food with glad and generous hearts, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Do you hear that? As the church worshiped God and as the church feasted together with glad and generous hearts, God added to the church. Worship and feasting. Worship and feasting throughout the week. That is how God was adding to the church. It was, it was by the church's public worship and it was as the church feasted together in fellowship, a fellowship marked by glad Gladness and generosity, joyful feasting and hospitality and true worship are inextricably linked. But, but take that a step further and ask the question, why, why is glad and generous feasting a fundamental part of the church's witness? And I think the most basic answer is because it reveals what God is like. That's the most fundamental reason. That feasting is at the heart of the church's witness because it shows visibly to the world what God is like and what his grace does. What is God like? Right? Is he, is he, is he austere? Is he stingy? Is he a party pooper? No. God, God loves to see his people Feasting lavishly together, dare I say it, using the church's funds to feast. Now I've really got all of your attention now, don't I? Now, of course, we should say if the feast is for sinful, selfish indulgence, then that's absolutely wrong. And we see examples in scripture of sinful feasting when... For example, in the book of Ezekiel, the shepherds of Israel are getting fat, right, off of uh, the flock that they were supposed to be feeding and caring for. And God promises to judge that kind of sinful indulgence. But when the church eats and drinks together with God at the center of it all, the church is, is bearing a profound witness to the world of what our God is really like. Right? Is, is feasting a waste of church resources? That's a question worth asking. Is spending church funds on food and, and good drink contrary to the heart of God? Well, let's go to Deuteronomy 14 and find out. Let's look at it. Deuteronomy 14 is a fundamental passage where God establishes tithing for the people of Israel. It's, it's one of the most extended treatments in the Bible on tithing. And if we come to this passage with what I think are common assumptions about tithing, 
I think, I think we're in for a bit of surprise. Uh, listen again to Deuteronomy chapter 14, beginning in verse 22. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. Now remember, talking about an agricultural community, agricultural society. So they're tithing their produce, produce from the land. And before the Lord your God, in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may fear the Lord your God always. And if the way is too long for you, so that you are not able to carry the tithe, when the Lord your God blesses you, because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there, right, so you Ultimately in view here is the idea you can't carry your flock, you can't carry the abundance of God's provision all the way to Jerusalem. That's the place that's ultimately in, uh, in view here. So it says, then you shall turn it into money, bind up the money in your hand, and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire. Remember, this is their tithe money. <laughs> spend it on whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. Isn't this an astounding revelation of what God is like? (laughs) What does God tell his people to do with their tithe? Deuteronomy 14 verse 23, eat your tithe. That's what it says. You shall eat your tithe. Again, this may come as a surprise to us, but we need to understand this and have our minds renewed by this truth that tithing was for feasting. Tithing was for feasting in the presence of God. Yes, it was for making necessary provisions for, uh, for others as well. But here we see that part of the tithe was for feasting. And it's a remarkable revelation of what God is like. Ask yourself another question. What was God teaching Israel with the tithe? Verse 23. That you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. How did the the tithe, how did feasting in the presence of the Lord teach Israel to fear the Lord always? Eat your tithe that you may learn to fear God. Well, here's what I think it means. In, In this act of eating... From the abundant provision of the Lord, the people learned to fear God. They were learning to recognize that God was their provider, the one who owns everything, (laughs) the earth and the fullness thereof, the one who feeds every mouth under heaven, the one who causes the rain to fall down to bring forth an abundant harvest, the one who gives cattle to his people to feed them, the people were learning to fear the Lord and that they depended upon him for every good thing. And that kind of fear, that kind of reverence of the Lord, as I mentioned in Sunday school, it goes hand in hand with joy, doesn't it? Verse 26, eat your tithe in the presence of the Lord and rejoice. So turn your tithe into money, then go to the temple, buy whatever you desire, meat, wine, strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and then eat it before the Lord and rejoice. Celebrate. That's tithe money. 
We might say that's church money. And it covered an extravagant feast where there's this abundance of food, wine, strong drink, and all of it is consumed in the presence of the Lord with rejoicing. And the reception of this lavish gift from God is meant to teach us to fear God because it points us to his super abounding goodness and generosity. And so in Christian feasting, God remains at the center of the meal as the author and giver of every good thing that is put on our plates and that fills our cups. Okay, so go back to the question again. What is God really like? What's his character? Is he stingy? Is he austere? Is he reluctant to give good things to his people? Far from it. We're seeing this again and again in Deuteronomy, but here we see it so clearly. Far, far from it. His goodness and generosity overflow so that even in the tithe, he gives good things to his people to enjoy and to share with one another in his presence. It really is a wonder, isn't it? And so the church, the church is called to enjoy and share God's goodness in table fellowship. Again, this is not incidental to our identity as God's people. It is a fundamental part of our life together. We, we eat and drink with glad and generous hearts because our God is good because our God is gracious and he has given us good things to enjoy, to taste and see that he's good. Deuteronomy 14 goes on to add to this feast of the tithe. I don't think I've mentioned it. We talked about it in Sunday school, how there are actually two tithes. There's the annual tithe and there's a triennial tithe in verses 28 and 29. But both tithes, emphasize that this is a communal event. The first says, you and your household are to come before the Lord and eat and rejoice. And now in the triennial tithe, we see that this is an even larger community event. And those who are unable to bring a tithe, the poor, the sojourner, the fatherless and widows, they come and they eat and drink their fill Two, they enjoy the same gifts. And so this feast is not only, it's not, it's not an exclusive feast. It's not a self-indulgent feast. It is a shared feast of hospitality in the presence of God. Everybody gets a seat at the table. Everybody enjoys the same food and drink. It is a communal Feast displaying visibly what our God is like and what the gospel of his grace does to his people. And so, brothers and sisters, what, what, do, we, what do we take away from this? What do we take away from this as we wrap up? From this survey of feasting in the Bible and from tithing in particular in Deuteronomy 14. At the very least, we have to recognize that feasting is not an option for the church of Jesus Christ. This is a part of the church's life, right? Generous and glad feasting is something that God wants us to do for for our good and for his 
glory. And as part of the tithe of Israel, I do not think it's a stretch to say that the church should budget for such feasting. If, if we think church funds spent on eating and drinking is a waste, then frankly we haven't begun to understand the tithe. Right? Tithing was for feasting so that God's people learn to fear and to rejoice in the Lord. And as they do so, they bear witness in this world to the superabounding generosity and goodness and grace of our God. What is God like? See, when God's people feast together, they are painting a culinary picture of what our God is like. And so when our tables are full and our cups are full and we are eating and drinking with joy in the presence of the Lord, the message is being proclaimed. God is good. And look at what his grace does. He's the kind of God who ensures that the poor and needy are not excluded. He's the kind of God who promises a rich feast of of well-aged wine at his table, and this ought to be reflected in the church's feasting now. Our final word, final word as we wrap up here. All, all of the feasting that we summarize today, I think it's worth recognizing, largely occurs in the context of a fallen and sinful world. Why don't you think about that? Think, think about, okay, here we are, in this present evil age, what are God's people called to do? Feast and rejoice. Israel brought out of bondage in Egypt into the wilderness so that they may hold a feast with me. Israel in the promised land, surrounded, constantly pressed by enemies, always feasting. The prophets in the midst of warning about impending judgment looked forward to this day of lavish feasting. Jesus came into this sinful and dark world, eating and drinking. The church in the book of Acts persecuted. What are they doing? Breaking bread, eating with glad and generous hearts. And what's going on in Revelation chapter 3 again? The church of Laodicea is in deep spiritual trouble. So Jesus comes to warn them. But what is the way back for them? Jesus comes knocking. And he says, open up the door to me and I will come in and eat with you. Right in the middle of the opposition of the world, the church is called again and again to a meal. To table fellowship. So brothers and sisters, I, I really hope that we are learning to see the meals that we share with new eyes. Right? It, it, I used the word potluck in Sunday school somewhat jokingly. Den, Denny corrected me. But uh, that, that what we often have in mind when we hear church lunch is probably a little bit deficient from what we've been talking about today. Eating and rejoicing as part of our witness to the world, showing what God is like. In the midst of this fallen and dark world, people are without hope in the world. What are God's people doing? Feasting with glad and generous hearts and welcoming others in. 
welcoming others in to taste and see God is good. And in doing so, what are we saying? We are saying that evil and sin and sadness and death and suffering do not have the last word in this world. Feasting, it involves, it involves merrymaking, it involves joy and mirth and gladness and laughter and delight and friendships made and strengthened over table fellowship that will carry on into eternity. And the church does this right now in the wilderness of this world as we anticipate the day when sin and death and sorrow will be no more and all of God's people will feast together in the presence of the Lord. That is our Christian hope, brothers and sisters. And we're to live in light of that hope right now. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for telling us and uh, showing us what you are like in this passage. We thank you that you set a table for us in the presence of our enemies and you feed us and you invite us to enjoy a fellowship with you and a fellowship with those to whom we belong in Jesus Christ. We pray that uh, individually and as a people, our lives would be transformed and renewed by the teaching of your word so that you are glorified uh, by our life together. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.